Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey Jim, great to be back. Latest edition of The Other Hand. It's been a busy week, uh, all sorts of things going on, and we've got a few choice things to talk about. We've had lots of data, and I know that you want to talk about Irish employment report that was out this week. There's been a little bit of an interesting move in Irish consumer confidence. We had a whole raft of European purchasing manager indices, which are forward-looking indicators of where the European economy is going. The story there was not a good one, and I think we need to just explore that briefly. And we've had German growth numbers today, and I think that they are worth mentioning. And I think we've also had some confidence numbers out of Germany. The IFO was also quite weak today. So I'm going to hand over to you in a second to talk us through some or all of that, and I'll join in as appropriate. But just to be different, I'm going to start with a joke. Oh, and this right. is because, uh, thank you, Jim. Thank you for that vote of confidence. Uh, something that goes on in the UK at this time of year is the Edinburgh Festival. And in particular, there's a, a really good part of it called the Edinburgh Fringe. You, you probably get it via your Sky subscription in, in, in Ireland, but here in the UK, we have a TV uh, channel that shows reruns of all sorts of different comedy programs, mostly going back in, into ancient times. Channel called Dave, have you ever come across it? No. No, never. Well, maybe it's just a British thing. I don't know. As I say, I don't know whether you watch it in Ireland. But anyway, it's one of these thousands of TV channels that shows a lot of repeats. But they did a survey of 2,000 of their viewers for the best joke told at the Edinburgh Fringe. Okay, and they're very short, you'll be pleased to know, you're going to groan at all of them. But I'll, I'll start with the, the, the winner. All right, which is okay. I started dating a zookeeper, but it turned out he was a cheater. That joke won the Edinburgh Fringe, according to 2000 day viewers. All right. I the saw second, that during the week. Yeah. The second, the, pri the joke that won the, the second prize was as follows. The most British thing I've ever heard a lady who said, well, I'm sorry, I'm never going to apologize. Number three. Now, this is where this is what attracted my attention, because this is an economics joke and it's a doozy. Uh, are you ready for it? Last year, I had a great joke about inflation. It's not worth anything now. <laughs> Jim, after that, 
moment of pure cheese and groan, um, I'm going to hand over to you to take us through some serious uh, economic data. Yes, Chris, uh, thank you very much for that contribution. Uh, I would love to get to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I was in Edinburgh earlier this year. Fabulous city. Loved it. Uh, It is a a great town. did, Did a Scottish whiskey tour, which I really enjoyed. But anyway, there we are. Um, yesterday, we got the labour force survey data for Ireland for the second quarter. Uh, this is basically the number of people in employment. What I really want to stress in all of this is that it is very difficult to find anything in this report that does not to love. It's an incredibly strong, upbeat story. And here again, <laughs> for fear of repeating ourselves, actually, this dystopian hellhole that is Ireland. You know, looking at the labour market, you certainly uh, would not subscribe to that view of the world. The number of people in employment in the year to the second quarter increased by 88,400. That's 3.5% growth in employment, uh, which is roughly in line with the real growth in modified domestic demand, that modified version of GDP. So we now have 2.643 million people in employment, which is the highest level of employment we've ever had in this country. So the labour market just continues to go from strength to strength. And I am not remotely surprised by this because anecdotally, it's pretty obvious that it's an incredibly vibrant, tight labour market out there at the moment. But just to dig into some of the data, the overall employment rate, uh, that's the number of the the percentage of the working population that's actually working, 74.2. That's the employment rate. That's the highest since the series began in 1998. And employment for females aged between 15 and 64, 70.5% are in employment. That is the highest level of female participation we've ever had in this country. So youth unemployment um, up a little bit at 12.2%. Uh, That was 11.4% a year ago. That is really the only um, slight dampener. And and I guess the reason why it's a real dampener is because it just does feed into the narrative about uh, this generation and how challenging it is at the moment, particularly in in the housing market. But anyway, a modest uptake in youth unemployment. That's one we need to watch. The unemployment rate is at 4.4%. And wait for this one, Chris. This is the long-term unemployment rate For people aged between 15 and 74 who've been out of work for a year or longer, the rate is 1.2%. In the second quarter of 2012, that's 11 years ago, that rate was at 9.5%. Incredibly strong. 21.2% of those in employment, that's 559,000 people, are in part-time employment. Um, and one in four of those would like to work more hours for more pay uh, because there is always an element of part-time employment in every workforce because part-time employment suits certain types of people, uh, you know, families with young kids, whatever. Uh, There's a reason why a lot of people. So there there is that element about, one, as I say, one in four of those in part-time employment would like um, more to work more hours for more pay. So in overall terms, Chris, it's an incredibly strong employment story. And um, I've used the term before, the mean, lean, green job creating machine. That is Ireland. I think I prefer now what you said earlier on, which is what's not to love. 
uh, that story that you told there about long-term unemployment is incredible because it used to be the case uh, across different economies where labor market economists would look at long-term unemployment, study it and think about it and almost throw their hands up about what on earth you could do about people that have been unemployed for long periods of time. And it seems to me the story is very simple. What you do about it is you run your economy hot for as long as you possibly can. And eventually everybody gets dragged into the workforce. Everybody gets a job. And it, it really is a simple, easy to say, of course, but uh, uh, not everybody can replicate the Irish experience. I'm looking at some of this labor force data right now, Jim, and also combining it with uh, some stuff going back a long way. And what was that total employment number that you quoted for the most recent figure? 2.643 million. Okay, we'll, we'll call that 2.7, shall we? Yeah. Do you know what it was in 1881? What, 1.1? 1. 1. 1.7 million. Oh, 1.7, okay, okay. So we're, we're in very rough terms. We now employ a million more people than we did back then. But do you know what total employment did between 1881 and 1981? Total employment. It fell? It, it fell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It yeah. fell. And it, it fell on a trend basis. And there were a couple of cyclical upswings. The 19, bizarrely, the 1930s was a stable level of employment. But of course, the story all the way up, really, until the 1980s and 1990s was a, was a falling employment. The two sources are the, all the, well, the three sectors of the economy, agriculture, which back in 1881 was by far and away the biggest part of the economy, industry, was then uh, and services were about equal, um, but both fairly small relative to, to agriculture. All three sectors have been falling from 1881 all the way through, really, to the, 19, the early 1990s. And agriculture has continued to, to fall, so that's been on a trend fall forever. Yeah, in, indeed. In in the year to the second quarter, there was a decline of another six thousand six hundred in agriculture. Yeah. So from you could tell the same story from output statistics, but from labour force, from people actually employed in agriculture, you can just see the massive, unprecedented, and probably unrepeatable structural change in the Irish economy over the last century or so. So that's a story about an, an agricultural economy becoming a service sector economy. And you can see the, the industry numbers are actually, they've been going up lately, but it's a service sector economy. It's all of those multinationals. It's all, all, of, the, all of that good stuff that we talk about so much. The explosion since 1991 really is quite extraordinary. There have been a few cyclical downturns, but we've, we've gone... The low for service sector employment was about one point, uh, was about, sorry, in 1991. And it's just taken off like a rocket ever since. There have been ups and downs, you know, the Celtic Tiger boom and bust and all the rest of it. But what a story, Jim. It is just amazing. And as I say, uh, the, the, the data for once, if you look at it, leap out at you and say, my God, what a story. And uh, um, what's not to love? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we also this week got the, and this is linked to the labour market story, actually, but we got consumer confidence. It declined a little bit in August, uh, first time in five months from 64.5 to 62.2. And uh, those that put this index together say there were three factors really driving this modest decline in consumer sentiment. One was negative job news. Secondly, was weather thirdly global uncertainty uh, the negative job news really uh, revolved around what's happening in the tech sector you know companies like microsoft and so on 
announcing job layoffs. So those sorts of headlines, you know, clearly impact on people's psychology. But the labor market facts do not actually bear this out because uh, the second quarter labor force survey showed IT employment actually increasing by eight and a half thousand in the year to the second quarter. Uh, there's now 173,400 people working in the IT sector, which is a record high as well. Um, the point is, a lot of those workers that are being laid off in these tech companies appear to be soaked up in other sectors of the economy that couldn't compete with those big joint tech companies over the last few years. I guess it shows how these new stories feed into people's um sentiment and psychology and what we've seen over the last couple of years actually um up well up to the end of last year consumer confidence for 12 18 months had been quite weak because the ukraine situation the cost of living crisis rising interest rates all of that stuff was feeding into consumer psychology but strangely that deterioration in consumer psychology was not feeding into actual the, the commensurate decline in consumer spending you might have expected so while people are feeling very very uns well quite uncertain about the future it's not been reflected in their own behavior uh, but it, it that's the that is the i guess the magic of economics it's a social science it's driven by human behavior psychology all of that stuff is incredibly important uh, but just to to finish on the point i mean those labor market numbers we got uh, for the second quarter, just incredibly strong. One of the things that strikes me about that in the context of the rest of the world, Jim, is how much in, in terms of developed economies, at least uh, in a European context, Ireland is an outlier now, isn't it? It certainly is. And uh, I think that segues nicely into the European PMIs and the European economic situation in general, which is not looking too good, is it? No, it's not. The Eurozone, the composite PMI, that's the one that captures manufacturing and service sector activity, declined from 48.6 to 47. That's the lowest since November 20. And just, just to explain once again, as we do every time, but it's worth pointing out that a reading below 50 means that there are more companies contracting than expanding. A reading above 50 means more companies expanding than contracting. So the composite down from 48.6 to 47. Uh, the manufacturing piece actually imp improved slightly, but the services piece fell from 50.9 to 48.3 back into contractionary territory. And the, the, the one country that really stands out in terms of weakness is the largest economy in the euro area, Germany. The composite index fell from 48.5 to 44.7. Uh, that's the sharpest decline since COVID hit back in early 2020. Manufacturing improved a little bit from 38.8 to 39.1. But wait for this, the services sector fell from 52.3 to 47.3. So this, this big growth engine of the European economy over the last couple of years, the services sector would now appear to be under pressure. And this is the impact of higher interest rates. And um, I, I wrote a piece in our Substack site during the week, basically saying and arguing that the European Central Bank should pause for breath at this stage, that there is no justification 
for further interest rate increases. And I certainly feel vindicated by the data coming out. And indeed, the EFO survey, the IFO survey of German business confidence this morning fell again. So there's a lot of weakness across the euro area. And for the European Central Bank to keep increasing interest rates against that sort of backdrop seems ludicrous to me. Yeah, I, I, we've been saying this for some time that uh, the European Central Bank risks making yet another big mistake as it's in, throughout its entire history. Um, I don't think it's done a great job with respect to monetary policy. Um, that, that's a personal view. Um, but in terms of central banks generally, Jim, as we speak, as we are recording this podcast, the Powell speech is out. And I don't think there are any surprises uh, in what he's saying is that he's uh, leave, leaving all of his options open. Uh, he's saying that uh, inflation is still too high because it's above its 2% target. He has to say that. And they're prepared to raise rates further if appropriate. And they intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably down towards our objective. There's something for everybody in the audience of this speech, which is that uh, if the numbers come in too hot, too strong, he's going to raise rates again. If inflation continues on its downward path, he won't. So I think there are no surprises. Um, that's on a very first read of the speech. But uh, for me, the US Central Bank is doing a much better job than is the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank, still, if it still raises rates in September, Jim, then I think we can definitely conclude they're making a mistake. Because at the moment, the data is suggesting to me that the Eurozone economy, unlike the states, is moving into recession. So, uh, you know, if, if anything, it should be that the Fed threatening to put rates up and Europeans going on pause rather than actually the other way around. So I, I think that we have a problem with, with central bank policy in Europe. As per your article that you published on our Substack site last week, I think they will take your advice, actually. And I, 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 no, I say that in all seriousness. I, I think that it, it, there is a good chance. And the markets have moved to say, rather than it being a definite rate hike in September, they're a bit more 50-50 about it now, I think. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. They, they are absolutely and just justifiably so. Uh, the Powell speech you refer to is the one he's delivering in Jackson Hole, Wyoming this weekend, uh, which is the annual symposium of central bankers, the great and the good of the central banking world. And we will obviously give it more coverage next week, um, you know, depending on what we hear over the weekend. But uh, I think it, it's, it is worth sort of turning our minds back a year ago. And I was in the we on the West Coast of the States 
at the time. But Jackson Hole uh, seminar last year was pretty seminal in terms of market impact because that was where a number of central bankers came out basically saying that um, inflation is too high. We are not going to allow it to become entrenched or embedded and we are going to keep increasing interest rates regardless of the economic consequences. If it means higher unemployment, if it means recession, uh, that would be a price worth paying for getting inflation under control. And, and that really set the scene for everything that has transpired, I think, over the last 12 months and had a huge impact on market psychology at the time. Um, we're, we're not expecting anything anything remotely approaching that level of significance this weekend. But uh, as I say, your initial reading of Powell would suggest that that is the case. But we'll see after the weekend just what comes out of that and we'll um, give it due attention next week. But Chris, moving out of the euro area and the, and the EU into the United Kingdom, uh, the purchasing managed indices for the UK, absolutely diabolical. Um, the composite index down from 50.8 to 47.9. Manufacturing, unlike the euro area, declined from 45.3 to 42.5. Services down from 51.5 to 48.7. Uh, this is a story of unambiguous weakness in the UK economy. And uh, I know feeds into uh, a very strong narrative you've had for some time about the UK. Yeah. And one of the things that's worth mentioning, and thanks to one of our listeners for drawing attention to this piece, one of the um, many writers in the FT that uh, are worth following is a guy called John Byrne Murdoch, uh, who's their data guy. And the FT is really, really powering ahead with data analysis. Data visualization, actually, its graphics on its website are getting better and better. They're getting more and more interactive so that you can... Uh, query a lot of the, the charts that they do and change the axes, change the, the, the components of, of their data charts. Really, really interesting stuff, the way in which this is data journalism is developing. And one of the pieces that he's done recently it was prompted by uh, various people um, talking about the levelling up agenda, which was always about Boris Johnson and still is supposedly Rishi Sunak's agenda. And somebody made the comment that... Um, the UK is now poorer than every state bar one in the United States. And he's dug into the numbers and come up with some pretty interesting conclusions, both in terms of the UK itself, but also the way in which other countries look on these sorts of measures. And it kind of speaks to something you and I not have had a discussion or disagreement about, Jim, but when I bang on about how dreadful the UK is, you have at times told me about your fondness for London, which I share. I think London's a fabulous city. Great. I lived there for many years. I love to visit it still. Um, and I, what I have said to you, which you've agreed with, is that London is not the UK. And what Murdoch Brown is definitely exploring here is that data that supports that assertion, London is not the UK. And he comes up with all sorts of different uh, data points to show just how different London is. Uh, and obviously, the measure you start with is GDP per head. Without the capital, the UK will be poorer per head than Mississippi. And for those uh, readers not too familiar with US data, Mississippi is one of the poorest states in the United States. So um, London makes up for everything. Um, the British people have a love-hate with relationship with London. 
Um, they're told by their politicians, by the Nigel Farages of this world, by the Pretty Patels of this world. It's the home of the metropolitan elite. They're told to hate North Londoners. They're told to despise them. Um, and the Londoners themselves uh, really would, as Murdoch Brown says in his piece, feel more at home with New York than they do with Newcastle. But London keeps the UK economically afloat. Uh, not just in terms of the goods and services that London produces, but in the terms of the tax revenues and fiscal transfers to poorer parts of the UK. Places like Wales, the northeast, Scotland, Northern Ireland get huge amounts of money from the London taxpayer. And if London didn't exist, these places would be economically in deep, deep trouble. And so there's what's interesting is that if you, if you, for example, in a place that I know well, Wales, there's no gratitude to the London taxpayer. If anything, there's resentment, which is an interesting um, uh, response to, to being handed large amounts of money every single day of the year. Uh, there's not a lot of gratitude felt in Wales to, to the English taxpayer, which is, which is interesting. What's happened since Brexit is spectacular in that Brexit was supposed to help the levelling up agenda of Johnson and Co of the Tories generally. And actually, it's made the whole regional inequality thing, which is what this piece is all about, it's made it worse because Brexit has affected trading goods badly so that exports of goods to Europe are suffering. Trading services hasn't, at least until relatively recently, suffered at all. So London has actually grown. It's now bigger than it was in 2019, which is not true of the rest of the country, for example. That's because services have held up, um, at least until that PMI survey that you just quoted there, Jim. It's an extraordinary story. London just keeps getting bigger, richer, and the rest of the country, relatively speaking at least, if not in absolute terms, becomes poorer. The UK is not London. London is not the UK. And the two ships, I think, are sailing further and further apart. Yeah, Chris, John, John Byrne Murdoch has a piece in Friday's Financial Times. I keep getting his name wrong, don't I? Yeah, you do. Yeah, that's fine, Chris. Senior okay. moment. They're allowed. I've had my own. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I threw out a number of 1.1 million employment I picked up the year wrong. But anyway, he's looking at infrastructure and the cost of delivering infrastructure in the United Kingdom. And he looks at the HS2 high-speed rail project that's going to allegedly or <laughs> planned to connect London all the way up to all the major cities. But the first phase of that is London to Birmingham. And if it's delivered, it will cost 396 million sterling for each mile of rail laid, which would make it the most expensive rail project in the world. In 2017, the French delivered one for the equivalent of 46 million sterling per mile. And so he, he goes on to look at the cost of delivering infrastructure in the UK and says that the United States and the United Kingdom are two countries that is most difficult and most expensive to deliver infrastructure. And he's putting this down to nimbyism. And the title of the piece today is about... Um, the, the tax that NIMBYism imposes on the United Kingdom. Uh, but he, he then makes the point that, you know, outside of London, uh, the cities have poor public transport and poor road infrastructure. So th that is that massive imbalance again. And re reading this piece and the piece about um, comparing the UK with Mississippi got me thinking about the, the Irish situation um, you know, the capital city, Dublin, whatever, 1.1 million people, a little bit more at this stage 
And if you look at the greater Dublin area, it's probably 1.3 million. Uh, the most populated part of the country generates the most gross value added in the country. So, you know, there is an, and, and there's also resentment towards Dublin um, in parts of the country, but nothing like that resentment towards London. But I, I, you look then at the major cities in the United Kingdom, you know, you look at Birmingham, you look at Newcastle, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, you know, it's it's grim enough. Well, but yes and no, Jim. One of the things I would say about that in that list of cities that you mentioned, Leeds. Leeds actually is a success story. And Leeds is a success story in all sorts of interesting ways. And it's a football team. Beg your pardon? Shit football team. Uh, correlation is not causation or whatever whatever anyway stop doing sporting metaphors they throw me because I don't know anything about sport Um, the the point I do know about Leeds I've been there recently and it it is a a very vibrant city that has done a lot of interesting things very well and it's a story about the difference that good policy good leadership can actually make because the the creation of economic success is not that hard, actually. It's not that difficult. It requires good leadership. It requires political bravery. But the things that you have to do to generate economic success are reasonably well known. It doesn't They don't guarantee success, but populism doesn't give you uh, economic success. Just trying to please everybody all of the time doesn't. The, the sort of things that you need to do require political courage and leadership, not populist claptrap. And Leeds is an example of a city that's actually done a lot of very successful economic regeneration. A lot of regions and parts of the UK have not, but that's mostly because of the people in charge are hopeless, are useless. They are like a board of directors, a management team of a company that that is failing, and nobody can be asked to do anything about it. Nobody can be asked to replace the board of directors of a failing company. And when you've got a failing company that is... In the stock market jargon, X growth, nobody wants to invest in it. But there are pockets in the UK where the, you do have good leadership, make people making good decisions. Uh, Leeds is an example, actually. What specifically are they doing in Leeds? I actually wasn't aware of that. They've attracted a lot of service businesses from London. I think Goldman Sachs are in Leeds, for example. A lot of the big, big four uh, consultancy, accountancy firms are there. They've regenerated a lot of the inner city very successfully. Uh, a lot of um, public-private partnership initiatives. There's a vibrant art scene. Um, they've uh, they managed to attract a, a lot of decent hotels, so that uh, tourism to that part of the region, part of the UK, is an attractive proposition. Um, you you struggle sometimes to find decent hotels in in some parts of the UK, or at least decent hotels at a decent price. Um, the, the the transport initiatives that they've taken, the local transport initiatives. Um, you talked about uh, John Byrne Murdoch. Did I get it right this that time? Yes, you did. Talking about the importance of public sector infrastructure generally and public transport in particular. They, those are two big, big things that the British, generally speaking, get very, very wrong, unless you're in London, where, of course, public transport is brilliant, absolutely fantastic. Leeds have got decent public transport as well. They've got a decent roads. They've got uh, sort of park and ride initiatives. Um, they've done a number of things, not perfectly, but they have done them well. And uh, it's, they, they certainly stand in stark contrast to other bits of the UK. So I'm not suggesting Leeds is a paragon of virtue when it comes to all of these things. I'm just suggesting that it, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, and the, the important point I'm making is that these economic outcomes 
are not given to us by God. They are given to us by political and economic choices that previous generations and indeed current generations are making. And so that Ireland's economic success is the result of choices that your policymakers have made over many years. And whether or not that success continues will depend upon the choices going forward. Economic policy is consequential. You can see it here in the UK because the air is coming out of London, uh, I think, slowly, um, because Brexit has caused a slow puncture for the London service industry, particularly the financial services industry, that's yet to show up meaningfully in the statistics. But I think over a number of years, it's going to. Um, and so that's another example of economic policy being consequential. The overall story here, of course, is that you don't have any brave politicians making brave political choices. They just have populist politicians pandering to whatever minority is shouting the loudest at the moment. That's the way this country is being run generally, which is why it is failing economically. So you, you need good, proper economic policy. We know how to do it. You just need people to do it. And in the UK, we don't. In Ireland, you do. But, of course, for how much longer? I don't know. You, you surprised me, Chris, because I thought it was all doom and gloom outside of London. So I am I'm happy I to hear. There are pockets, pockets of success yeah. that, that, that make that point that it, yeah. nothing, nothing is inevitable. Nothing is preordained. It's all about the consequential consequences of good or bad economic policies. And you just have to make a choice about which, which ones you're going to follow. There, there is a case study to look at, absolutely, what's mm. happening in Leeds. Um, the point I was, I was going to make about Ireland, you know, the cities like Galway, Limerick, Cork, and to a lesser extent, Warford, my home city, um, you know, are doing reasonably well. And, and one of the key reasons for that is because foreign direct investment has been very strong in those cities. Uh, particularly Limerick and the Shannon region, Cork with Chemical Pharma and Galway with MedTech, but this, you throw in tourism as well. And of course, Limerick has an international airport, as does Cork. That helps because connectivity is really important. So um, we, we don't have these dramatic regional imbalances in Ireland uh, because of policy decisions that have been made. And everybody you know, consistently bitches here about massive regional economic imbalances and there are imbalances but it is nothing like as stark as in other countries such as the UK such as the United States for example so we need to be careful about how we manage it here um you know Ireland is doing reasonably well on many metrics we do have challenges the health service is a challenge law and order has been highlighted as a significant challenge in recent times um but you know we're we're doing a housing of course i shouldn't forget that but we're, we're doing okay as a country so um what we need to do is push this agenda forward build on it and i hope we do and that we don't mess it up and, and always, always remember that economic policy is massively consequential for good or ill all right jim let's call it there and we'll um talk on the beginning of next week. Indeed, Chris. Have a good weekend, okay? Cheers, buddy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. 
If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 